you got your mojo working? Do you just want to give it a good kickstart? Either way, you've come to the right station. The Mojo Radio Show will help you get your mojo working at work and at play. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to the fifth season of the Mojo Radio Show. It sounds like a bit like Netflix, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, what are we all about? Well, we're a little show designed to help you get your mojo working in and out of the workplace. It's a program where we just find interesting people from all parts of the world, and today is no exception, from all walks of life, be it, I don't know, sport, business, social enterprise, science, technology. We've had people talk about brain, wellness, psychology. If we think it can help us get our mojo working, then we is all in. Thanks for spending some time with us. A uh, little thought for you. If you haven't hit the subscription button yet, then do it because that way you get every show sent to you just as soon as they come out. You haven't got to worry about it. One less thing on your to-do list and you won't miss any gold. And I promise you there is plenty that lays ahead. As always, behind the panel, Chief Engineer, driving the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome, Robbo. Hey, mate. Good to see you back in the country after a little stint overseas. I went to San Diego for a big conference to speak over there, and I've got to say I loved San Diego. Nice. It's a nice part of the world. I've actually been there. Lovely part it of is. the world. It uh, is. We stayed at the Manchester Grand Hyatt down on the boardwalk opposite the big aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. and... Uh, the people, American Airlines is who I flew with in America. I've got to say the service was absolutely outstanding. Mm. You mentioned uh, the other day you were telling me that uh, they, when they board their passengers, they board uh, first class disabled and military personnel first. Is that right? Well, it actually wasn't first class. It was people with children, those who need assistance and the military. And right. Then, and then first class. And then first class. Oh, that's great. That's, that. that's really nice. That's a good honour for someone who deserves it, isn't it? It is very good. And I was in San Diego for Vistage, which is a worldwide organisation who coach and assist CEOs. And there was a thousand chairs of these groups in the room. Uh, and it was the best international speakers for Vistage from around the world. But the good thing for us is that uh, I've scored a number of those speakers who will be on the show in the next few weeks. So uh, we have got the best new speaker from Canada, one from the UK, one from America. So we've mm. um, I scored some good people over there. Did you have to spend a lot of money to get on that list, mate? Just, just uh, Dos Equis, <laughs> the universal currency of negotiation. <laughs> Dos Equis. What will it take? So, AP, over there in the booth, you good to go, mate? You uh, ready to lay down some tracks, as they say in the business? Actually, you know what I think he needs, mate? Just pass me one of those Dos Equis. Hmm? (coughs) (laughs) Too early? Never too early. (coughs) Never too early. All right, let's get into it. Where am I? The Mojo Radio Show. Casper van der Mulen is an author and he describes himself as a lifestyle adventurer. This this is one interesting dude. He was overweight and self-proclaimed burnout. He was unhappy and he went from all that to working out how he could develop laser beam focus, getting fit, 
And probably the most important thing with all this is he feels as though he's created personal freedom, which I think a lot of people are struggling with. So what I liked about Casper is that he he's done stacks of experiments and he's challenged himself to work out how can he optimise his life. Now, whether it be how do you conquer the cold, uh, he's done ultra marathons in bare feet, He's done all the different diets you could imagine. He's gone through his scientific papers and literature and books. And Casper's put it all together and he walks the talk. He's, he's applied it to himself and now he coaches and helps others with all his discoveries. I first heard Casper on the Ben Greenfield podcast, which I listen to from time to time, was taken by his stuff and particularly the stuff around focus and mindset. So Casper, uh, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, you're an interesting guy. If you meet somebody in the street who says, Casper, what do you do? How do you like to reply? I, I usually hope people ask another question. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I do is um, I teach, basically. That's the shortest answer I can give. And uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the topics of human potential um, and, and the inner primal abilities that we all have, that we walk around with and we, and we don't use. So I study those topics vigorously and then whatever I learn I teach as much as I can because that's for me another you know basically the best way to learn is to teach and to connect with like-minded people. So human potential is a really interesting word if you think back through your journey we're going to get back to what started all this for you but just on that do you feel as though you are making more of your human potential than ever before? That's a really interesting question. And I'm probably not the only one, but I think that I've always felt that there was something more possible for me, especially not necessarily more than I was doing, but especially more than I was told I was able to do. And I think that there's a lot of external programming in school, in you know jobs, in social surroundings, in parenting, that teaches us to not go for uh, full expression of what is within us. So for me, it's very much about expression of what is within. And I definitely keep being surprised, uh, keep surprising myself at what is possible, what is achievable. Um, and also I, I keep finding that this whole thing is actually, um, th- this whole human potential thing is much more needed than people think. I think this is, well, this is why I've dedicated my life to it. I think it's the most important area um, of, uh, well, the most necessary area of development for the planet, for humanity. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the whole thing that, that people start to express themselves more, that they start to step into their purpose and, and live a more fulfilling life. I think it's it's a very high necessity thing. So yes, I, I keep looking back and going, oh wow, I, you know, my life turned out this way, or now this was possible, and that happened, and and I I I've always hoped for these things to to be possible, but I've uh, never really never really thought it would be that awesome if they did. <laughs> that's that's kind of the thing. So why were you getting in your own way? Because I, I think this little part to open the show is so profound because I, I reckon there's a lot of people who, in the back of their mind have that thought, that dream, that aspiration. They always, they have that thing that something's going to happen or I'm destined for or I want to do this. But 
we just don't do it. And you were in that situation. You went for a long time where there was other distractions, yet you just said you always felt it was there. What was the what was the actual, do you remember the turning point, the actual moment where you went, I feel as though it's there. Now I'm going to take the first step. Well, to be honest, I don't, I get that question a lot. And there was not really one turning point. Um, a lot of people want to hear, you know, that epiphanal moment, that moment when everything took a turn and, you know, the, the heroic music starts playing and the training montage starts and, you know, running up the steps and, and the whole thing. Um, it's not really that, it, for me, it wasn't that clear of a moment. It's a much more human, much more romantic, uh, le- much less romantic story of really trying to find my way through life, uh, dealing with, you know, health issues and depression and anxiety and burnout and just seeing this loop in my own life where I kept basically stepping into the same uh, pitfalls and, you know, getting into the into that hole again and then going, how did I end up here again? And then with more and more clarity, starting to see, starting to become aware of the mental and emotional patterns that kept my life in the same state. And there have definitely been a few pivotal moments where I, I gained a lot of clarity. And those, you know, there, I've, I've had a few moments of opportunity where I could kind of leap out of my pattern and see much more clearly what I could change and how I could change. And I do think, though, that a lot of people are waiting for that moment of insight, the moment of clarity, a moment of um, permission, actually. A lot of people wait for permission to finally start their life. Somebody, something, some entity out there needs to, you know, come down and grant them permission to start to live their magnificent life. And um, there have been a few pivotal moments, but uh, where I understood this more profoundly, um, but it been all about action and about taking action and then seeing how every action leads to more opportunity, more ability, and then keep focusing on the actions that actually help. And that's a very, actually a, a slow process, but it's one that does uh, go exponential. So it starts out very slow. And if you just keep at it and stay the course, uh, then things will start to happen in my experience. The thing I want, to, want you to take us back to is that time of burnout. Because it seems there are a lot of people who potentially are flaming out right now. They're either flamed out or they're in the process and don't really recognize it. What did it feel like for you? That time when you cast your mind back to those where you were unhealthy, overweight, you used the term burnt out. How did that feel and how dark did it get for you? Well, I have had a few of those periods in my life and probably three or four. Uh, One of the more one of the most difficult ones was way back when I was about uh, 15 or 16, and I spent a few years being up to no good, basically uh, just doing nothing but getting high and getting in trouble and um, being completely unable and unwilling to deal with my life. Um, and after a few years of, of uh, drug abuse and, and all kinds of misbehavior, I, uh, I couldn't really take it anymore, and I had to change something. And, uh, you know, I did and I went sober and I had this whole, uh, a few months where uh, my life just wouldn't work anymore. I was getting paranoid. It felt like I was losing my mind and I was only 16 and I spent, you know, four years not being sober and not being up to any good. And, um, that was, that was a very deep and dark moment where I realized that, uh, this was not 
working for me, that every single thing I'd been practicing, every pattern in my life was not serving me in any way. And I had to do something to change. And I didn't know what it was. And I discovered a lot. I learned a lot from that period. And I'm still learning from that period in my life because um, a, a few very interesting things came to play, basically, where I couldn't function anymore. You know, I, I couldn't go to school. I was having a really hard time. But then I also had moments of extreme clarity and insight from going through the depth of the emotions and the depth of, of despair in that sense, um, you know, there were intense moments of clarity. And one of them was, actually, I wrote about this uh, uh, in my book. It's a story more and more people know, which is interesting because this used to be one of the more, more difficult personal stories of mine that I hardly ever told anybody. And um, uh, now it's the first chapter of my book. <laughs> so my my kind of ability to, to, to deal with these things and to tell the story to, in a serving way has definitely developed. But um, I was in my backyard going out of my house on my way to school. And I hadn't been there for quite a while. And I had to do my exams. And I was really anxious. I started having anxiety attacks about school. And this one day I was like, okay, I'm going. I stepped out of my house. And every step I took closer to the exit of my garden, you know, on my way to school, I just got a stomach ache and I started hyperventilating. And every step I got closer, it got worse and worse. And I was having a full-blown panic attack, full-on adrenaline and everything. And I decided I couldn't do it. So I, you know, I stepped back and I started walking back to my house and it went away. And that was to me like, okay, so apparently I do feel fine. So I started walking towards the exit of my garden again because I really wanted to go back, go back to school. And then the whole panic attack started up again. And I walked back and it went away. And I went back and forth a few times until I had this moment of clarity and realized that, hold on a second, in the present moment, everything is still fine. It's a sunny day. I'm in my own backyard. I'm completely fine, you know, in, in objective reality, so to speak. I, um, there wasn't anything wrong. But my mental focus changed, my intention changed to something else. And then my entire physiology, you know, my hormonal systems, everything in my body changed because of this one change in mental uh, focus and intention. And to me, that was definitely one turning point where I realized, well, it was a turning point um, in terms of perspective. And a lot of people have turning points in the realm of perspective, but it doesn't necessarily become a big turning point in their lifestyle and behavior right away. So that moment of perspective and clarity uh, that a lot of people have in phases of burnout or depression uh, doesn't actually turn into the right action in the present moment. So a lot of people who are listening to this, you know, to translate it in a more practical side, there might be people who listen to this who are on the point of going into flaming out or, you know, on the verge of dropping into a depression. And they know very well, they actually know very clearly what they need to do to change. Or there's people who are, you know, very overweight and they're on the road to being a type 2 diabetic. And they know exactly, they have the perspective of what they could change. You know, there's, most people actually have some insight of, I should eat differently, I should move more, I should start meditating, I should call out for help, I should... Uh, you know, I need to stop sacrificing my health for productivity, stuff like that. But then how do you turn into action? So for me, that, that moment when I was about 16 years old, that definitely was a moment of clarity where I, I, I gained the perspective, um, but I couldn't immediately adapt. So I had to start asking the question of why. 
why and how. And that's when I slowly got into things like martial arts and meditation and started learning about neuroscience. And so luckily, I was pretty young at it. And, and also music played a big role in, in my development. Yeah, that, that was definitely one of the deeper moments. And another one was about six years ago, uh, which is kind of the, the one that set off the whole path that I'm on now. So it's actually my last you know, uh, period of having a really hard time in my, my life and being overweight, having, I had this heart rhythm disorder, this heart arrhythmia, I had migraines, I had shoulder injuries. And, you know, I was, uh, uh, let me think, I was about 26, 27 years old at, at the time, supposed to be in the prime of my life. Uh, but I was a mess and I had no idea how to deal with it. And I had an, another one of those periods where I just started having anxiety issues. I couldn't, I could work, I couldn't function. And at that time, I was working as a teacher in a school, as a science teacher, which is kind of a job I uh, stumbled into or almost bluffed my way into. I wasn't really planning to turn that into any, anything serious, but it did start to become something serious. And all my issues were lifestyle related. I mean, you know, I, I can trace them back to some emotional things and maybe trauma in my earlier life, but it was definitely all lifestyle, which just basically means it was me making myself unhealthy. Um, from all these disempowering mental and emotional patterns. And a thing I learned there, which is a much more powerful perspective than my own, so the perspective that I had when I was about 16 at that, that moment, um, was very much about how I was thinking about myself and about my world and how it was shaping my world in the present moment. Just my, you know, my mindset and my choices were shaping my world. Um, the other one that I was referring to just now, which is about six years ago, um, it was very much about my environment because I was working with these kids in school and they, they were looking up to me. They thought I was some kind of superhero because of the way I was teaching because I was teaching in very you know, creative ways. I was showing my vulnerability. It was uh, you know innovative in a sense. Uh, I just focused on whatever these kids enjoyed doing. So they liked me as a teacher and they started looking up to me and I was like, hold on, no, don't look up to me. <laughs> you, know, you don't know who I am, man. I, I've got issues. Um, but that allowed me to make my own issues, my own problems uh, and the way out, it, it allowed me to make that about something bigger than myself. And that is definitely and still is, at that time it was, but now still is one of the most powerful things that um, I have learned and that I still use is the perspective of it is about something bigger than yourself. And a lot of human suffering, I, in Buddhism they say all of human suffering, which I tend to agree with, comes from a focus on the self and taking the self very seriously. Um, and then when you make your uh, your struggle or you know your life about something bigger than yourself, it becomes purposeful. And that's how you turn this, you know, uh, issues and problems and things into something that is purposeful and suddenly the struggle is meaningful and is dedicated to something that is worthwhile and that allowed me to really snap out of it and get on this path of self-development goal setting um, taking charge of my life taking the right actions changing my lifestyle and eventually to the you know the successful business and the speaking career and the book and everything um, but it started from being deep um in that dark place and then understanding that I had to kind of dedicate my own development also to something bigger than just myself. Gold rubber, gold, gold, a golden Buddha. That's gold. gold. Golden Buddha. Yeah, the golden Buddha. <laughs> the golden Buddha, come on. He's I've, brought got, it. I've got the, I've got 
got the same shiny dome. I've got a shiny golden dome. <laughs> that, makes, like that makes three of us. That makes three of us. We're all very attractive men, mate. Big, bald, and beautiful. Yeah, they, say it's a, they say it's a sign of intelligence. Yeah, and, and high testosterone is another thing. High testosterone. CB, I'll take it. Tick. Yeah. Good stuff. Hey, um, on that, you talk about helping people get mentally fit. What does it feel like? to be mentally unfit? Like what's that state? Well, that's a, that's a good way to phrase the question because fitness, uh, if, you look at it, if you look at the evolutionary um, definition of fitness, it means how well you fit into your environment. So how well, do you, how do, how well does your, uh, your set of qualities and capabilities and adaptations fit the needs uh, of life? You know, what, what life asks from you. So be, it all depends on what your environment is and what you need. And a lot of people are mentally unfit because their environment doesn't ask anything from them. And they don't ask anything from themselves. So one, being mentally unfit is being unable, so not fitted, to cope with the demands of life. Um, and there's a few ways to approach it. You can improve your fitness and you can change the demands of life, change the state of life, make different choices about where you go. And I think both of them are very important. Um, so a lot of people, uh, you know, being not mentally fit is a lot of times you see it in, in low energy, um, low focus, low ability to determine the direction of one's own attention. Uh, which is the same thing as, you know, distraction. But distraction is a very common term, but it's, it's fundamentally not being able to um, channel your attention, your, your mental uh, currency, into the things you want. So a lot of people say, I don't have attention. Well, actually you do, but you just have to learn how to focus it on the things that are important to you. So that to me is a very uh, important thing. It's another thing is a, f a more fundamental one, which is just the the uh, ability of the mind, like the the brain, the, the physical organ of the brain to actually function. So a lot of people are mentally unfit, unable to focus, uh, low in energy, um, not just because they make the wrong choices, not because they need to suck it up, but also because they might have uh, issues with their nutrition. They have chronic inflammation. They uh, do all kinds of things, have all kinds of input in their lives that are causing their brain to just not work at the level that it could be. So I, I always find it very important to also look at the biological, the neurological states um, and the way that the biology shapes um, mental patterns and mental abilities. So some people, they might feel depressed and they think it's a lot of emotional stuff to deal with, which a lot of times it is, but it's also, you know, your gut biome, um, the, the state of your nervous system, your heart rate, the things you eat, uh, the things you take in uh, on an information level, you know, the impulses you take in that are causing these, these mental muscles to not work properly. And there's a very physical aspect to it. I mean, the brain is a physical organ. It's a chemical organ. And all these neurological, chemical, so physical processes, they shape our mental world, our thoughts, our ability to guide our attention, and thus our choices in life, our actions, and our, you know, the reality we live in, the circumstances of life. So I think um, being mentally unfit is looking at the environment, what it needs from you, and how to shape your mind 
and shape our environment in a way where they can kind of thrive together. So you just mentioned focus and the word you use is laser focused. And I just want to tie a few things together here because I'd like to hear your perspective of how you have gone about developing better or laser beam focus because we had Cal Newport who wrote Deep Work on the show and he said that focus is the new IQ. So there's that part of the question, Casper, but then something that feeds out of your last answer is we don't really, I think, consider the nutrition and how the nutrition that we put into ourselves or we don't put into ourselves affects our focus. What have you learned about this on your journey? Nutrition is probably the biggest thing, or for me, it was the first thing that showed me that much, much more was possible. Um, so first of all, yeah, I love Cal Newport and his work. He's a great, great author, very you know, uh, influential thought leader in my work as well. So and another thing that's very influential to me and, and to my study and my life has been uh, Carol Dweck's work, which is about, well, she wrote a book called Mindset, about growth mindset and fixed mindset. And focus is typically an era, an area where people uh, have the assumption that it is a built-in trait. So you have an amount of concentration, you know, you have a certain ability of concentration, of focus, and that's it. So kids very early on learn, if you can sit still and shut up for eight hours a day, it means you're good at focusing, good job, you know, good kid. It is part of your identity. It's part of your set, your fixed traits that you were born with. And, well, you're lucky because you were born with them. But then if you can't, you know, sit down and shut up for seven hours a day, they go, well, you know, this kid can't focus. And it's obviously something wrong with their character, with their, you know, natural ability. And this is how a lot of people end up with a label, with a fixed idea that their uh, ability to concentrate, to focus their attention is a fixed trait. And it is a very, very sad thing. It's almost like an epidemic, actually, because we live in a world where and nutrition is a very important thing, absolutely, not just food nutrition, but I also see you know, nutritious movement, nutritious input in terms of information and impulses as very important parts of this. So what I think people should understand first is that focus, just like all the other traits that you would want in your life, are a product of effort and are not uh, a result of of being lucky with your genetics. Um, genetics play a massive role. And yes, you can be lucky and have the ability to focus and you were born with it and it's great. But even then, you still need to practice. You still need to apply the right behaviors in order to keep it and to maintain it. So the first thing is uh, that I teach people that with another reason why I use the term mental fitness is uh, because it uh, translates well to physical fitness. That's a good analogy. I talk about focus focus being a mental muscle, something that you can train. And in order to have a strong muscle, you need to actually use it, you need to challenge it in a way where it's challenged enough to adapt and get stronger and not so much that it's burnt out. And also you need to feed the muscle. Literally, you need to feed that mental muscle of focus. So the idea of mental training, the idea of um, training of your focus, training of any trait you want to develop, that's a very important one to me. That's the first one people need to get to go, well, you know, of course you can't focus. You haven't practiced it and you haven't learned how to practice it because most people have practiced a large part of their life to be unfocused, to not have direct 
um, access to their mental abilities. Because, for example, in the school system, if you are expected to sit down and be quiet for seven hours, and that is not your style of learning, that doesn't fit you, and I don't think it's anybody's natural style of learning, I think there's a, a lucky few few people that we that can do it or that find a way to do it and we call them smart people you know we call them intelligent while that's just one and they are but it's just one kind of intelligence i mean the people that can't sit still and shut up you know or they that's what they call focus in the school systems sitting down and shut up is the same thing as focusing and the people that cannot do it are apparently not intelligent which is just a very limited view of the human brain and human capacity so um, the first one is train it. If you want it, practice it. What you practice is what you get. And we have learned to have a lazy brain that does not focus well. Because if you come into your school or your work or your job and you know I, I have seven or eight hours of um, basically mental drainage ahead, in a sense, you know. I need to I need to use that mental muscle for seven or eight hours, and I have no idea how intensely. I have no idea how much focus is going to be asked of me. Um, then you f find a way to hardly use the muscle f for the work, right? So there's people don't go into full focus because why would they? You know, there's no real necessity. They can get away with just seven hours of staring out the window and kind of like going into this hibernation mode with their brain. So in that way, you practice being unfocused, but energy efficient, which is something that I've seen in the education system a lot. So we need to start training, start looking at the mental muscle that you want to train and asking, what's the next step? What is that one thing that is just beyond my current ability that will challenge my current ability to grow? And that's mental training. Another thing is to support the natural abilities of the muscle. So for example, some people have and an untrained muscle and they have the you know an untrained ability and they have the ability in an unhelpful environment so for example um so education is where i have most experience uh in standard education teaching science and there would be these kids with with adhd with a massive stamp on their forehead saying cannot focus you know built-in trait but turns out that if you change their environment suddenly they have amazing laser focus and that's why i use laser focus because if you gather and bundle all the abilities it becomes as strong as a laser beam now if you you know if you, if you look at light um if light is scattered and dispersed it doesn't it's not very powerful it's just kind of like floating around it's here and there but then if you focus an amount of light into this very um strong bundle then it becomes extremely powerful. That's that's why I use the term laser focus because I kind of like the idea of, you know, I, I really see it as, let's say you have all this dispersed light just, just scattered all over the place and you start to gather that and gather that and really bring it together in this bundle. It becomes a super powerful, you know, awesome lightsaber of focus if, if you do it right. So that's what I started to, to basically experiment with on these uh, kids with ADHD because, you know, the, the label says they can't focus. So what do I do with them? And for example, then I realized if they, if I change their environment and their input, they can focus. So for example, if they are allowed to stand up and walk around, they're fine. Or I gave them a Rubik's Cube with a specific assignment to mess it up even more. Instead of fixing it, they had to mess it up. So what they would do is they would just fiddle with their hands and shake it around and like really go chaotic with their fingers. And as soon as their fingers became chaotic, their mind became 
super focused and they were present and they were aware they could learn or you put an ADHD kid in a leadership uh, role one that they can actually manage then suddenly you have this genius walking around with ultra focus and being able to manage all these different impulses from the room or I would uh, you know give them different ways to uh, engage with the classroom for example they had to change their physical position every 10 minutes. So I had to have a timer. I, uh, you know, lesson goes for 10 minutes, and then after 10 minutes, we would change everything. So people would go to a different seat, or instead of sitting down, they would stand up, or they would sit on their desks. Sometimes, you know, we'd stand on the desk and jump off and sit back down. And so it was shifting the environment. And suddenly, these kids could focus just fine. So, you know, a lot of people don't have a lack of focus. They have a lack of understanding of what they need to actually focus. And then if they change it around, they can um, and then there is, you know, a very important part of the environment, the input where the mental muscle is, where the focus is, is um, uh, nutrition. So actually the food you put into your body and the way that it allows your body to go into different mental states and specifically uh, focus is a, is a very important one. And it's a difficult one because focus is something that takes a lot of energy. Um, you know, it's a function of the uh, prefrontal cortex, which is the, the director of conscious attention and planning. It's kind of like the management team of your brain. And this is a function that requires a lot of energy. You know, every, every moment of mental activity is literally electricity being made in your brain. And that brain is only like 2% of your, of your body mass, but it takes up a, a massive amount, I think like 20% of your energy in a day. So, uh, it takes a lot of energy, and if you don't feed it right, it won't function. Um, a lot of people have a lack of focus because their brain is chronically inflamed because they're eating all kinds of stuff that is bad for their gut, and then you know their their brain responds. So, as on a personal note, for me, when I was ten or eleven, I was that kid in the back of the class. I was I was overweight, couldn't focus, couldn't make friends, had a really hard time getting around. I had trouble with teachers. I was getting depressed. And then uh, we went to, uh, my mom took us, took me to a whole bunch of different doctors and professionals, and a lot of them would have, uh, you know, a diagnosis and a pill. So one would say, ADHD, here's the Ritalin. Or they'd say, you know, uh, anxiety disorder, uh, here's the beta blockers, and, and a few of those. And then we got to, you know, a few other people that had expertise on it, right? and they said, hmm, let's... Let's start looking at what he eats. And what I ate most was uh, sugar and dairy. And then they were like, hmm, maybe we should take out the sugar and dairy. you know. And we did. And two months later, after no refined sugar at all, no dairy at all, I was suddenly way more focused. I could function well. I was learning. I was having fun in school. I was making friends. I was being social. Um, and suddenly the whole thing they they would call ADHD or anxiety disorders or uh, you know oppositional disorders or whatever was just uh, for a large part gone so it, to me it's played a massive massive role it's interesting when you went to the doctor i know you spoke about one particular doctor who did a whole bunch of markers which weren't particularly great but then the doctor said you were normal and your comment was that normal at the doctor is not the same as healthy. What did you take out of that? Oh yeah, yeah. That that was um, a few years back when I when I had the, the heart arrhythmia. Uh, it was stressing me out, and it, and it was it was one of those loops where I had the heart 
arrhythmia uh, stressed me out. I started worrying about it. That made the arrhythmia worse. Worse, and then I started stressing about that it was getting worse. <laughs> I was just in this loop of laying in bed at night, thinking I was having a heart attack, and then freaking out because I was thinking I was having a heart attack, and then you know this whole this whole thing. And um, I went to the doctor. I said, you know, what's wrong with me? Fix me. You know, let's just see see what's going on. She asked me all these questions. And, you know, I, I was saying I had, I, I had frequent migraines and frequent uh, lower back pains and neck issues and, you know, the heart arrhythmia. She was like, we'll do a bunch of tests um, and we'll see what's wrong and what we can fix. And so I asked, is there anything I can do in the meantime? She was like, well, yeah, it's always a good plan to, you know, quit smoking and lose some weight, uh, eat more vegetables. And I was like, hey, that's something I, I could probably work with. So I did that for a while, had the test done, and then I came back into the office and I'd lost a bit of weight. I cut down on my smoking. I was drinking two cups of coffee instead of, you know, eight espressos, um, things like that. And it had gotten a bit better. And she was looking at the results and she looked at the results and she looked at me and she said, well, looks like you're healthy. And I said, oh, that's uh, what, you know, what does that mean? And she said, well, you know, you lost some weight, you're, you're only, you know, 15 kilos overweight. It's a bit, it's a bit much, but it's basically average, not too bad. You're only smoking two or three cigarettes a day, which is, you know, pretty normal, actually. And uh, it's better to stop, but, you know, it's okay. And you only have one migraine a month, which is not actually that, uh, that off from the, from the normal curve. And so all the things she was saying was, you're normal, you're average, you're okay. Uh, none of that spelled healthy to me. So there's a big difference between uh, what we call normal in modern society and what is actually healthy. And a lot of people find normal much more important than healthy. You know, a little example that I'd like to give is when I was um, starting to get an idea of how mental training worked and starting to get interested in this whole field of biohacking, I was still smoking and I, I said to myself, so what do I really need from the smoking? And is there any way that I can give it to myself without the cigarette? And I was, I realized that if I do a bunch of push-ups, I usually get this a bit of a high after it. I feel a bit better. And I realized it had to do with endorphins and with blood flow and, you know, feeling stronger. So I decided to um, systemize my smoking. So I took away all the random cigarettes and just went to my five most important ones that I found important at the time. So one for breakfast, one for lunch break, one, well, you know, smokers have these patterns. Um, and then I took it down to five and then I started replacing one cigarette a day for a set of, of push-ups, a maximum set of push-ups, which was only like eight when I started and it started to build up pretty quickly. Um, and I found myself, my, my lunchtime cigarette, uh, it was time for my lunchtime cigarette. I was working in the school and my smoking buddies, you know, every smoker has their smoking buddies that are all, you know, we like to uh, go outside and smoke and talk about, you know, have, have all these excuses for still smoking. And then, you know, that was kind of like my break time. I had my little crew of smokers, cool guys. And they said, okay, guys, time for a smoke break. Let's go outside. And I was like, Sure. See you later. I'll stay inside. And then I dropped down and started doing push-ups. And they were like, hold on, Casper. That's totally weird. You can't just, in the middle of a school, drop down and start doing push-ups. I go, really? This is weird. But saying, you know, I'm going to step outside and suck hot carcinogen smoke into my lungs and increase my chances of cancer with 80%, that's normal. 
right? <laughs> so the healthy choice is a lot of times not the normal choice. And especially, I, I like to call this the, the, the social immune system, where in a specific social group with people you hang out with, you spend time with, you develop a set of rules, a set of norms. And as long as those norms, you know, norms are normal, as long as they are kept by everybody in the social group, everybody feels safe and they feel fine, they feel understood. And they don't feel singled out, which is um, might be the most important factor for, for human health or well-being is to feel like you belong in a group. So even though the behavior is profoundly unhealthy, just the fact that it makes us feel part of the social group feels more important as a more important survival stimulus than taking care of personal health. And that is a very interesting thing that I keep seeing where people come to my courses, to my treats they have an amazing time they you know they see the light they have this mind-blowing like i'm going to change this and i'm going to go there and then the next day they come to their normal friend group or even to their you know to their wife or their parents or whatever and they speak about all the things they've been learning and they want to change and then their social group gets uncomfortable and the social immune system starts working and it starts trying to work out all the new healthy behaviors that even though they're healthy for the individual do not fit in with the rules and especially with your oldest friends you have like the the biggest rules of this is how we do things on friday night we drink until we're stupid you know and on saturday we brag about how bad our hangover is and those type of things mate if i could just um ask you about distraction and we just talked about that in terms of focus we had Greg McGowan on the show and he wrote the book Essentialism. And one of the things he talked about, which is damaging our ability to focus, was the quick glance. And I heard you talk about some data that said that if I check emails while I'm doing cognitively demanding work, it actually lowers my IQ by 10 points. So quickly checking the quick glance is actually having an effect on my IQ. Could you share some of the science behind that? Well, yeah, this is a study that was done that I quoted in my book that has shown that checking email in between other tasks um, diminishes IQ. Uh, so it's a very interesting study. The idea is that our brain is a single function device. It's a train, single. We, everybody has a single track mind, basically. So multitasking is, to a degree, impossible uh, you can do multiple things at the same time i mean you know I, I can i can juggle three balls and have a conversation and when i juggle the balls actually the quality of the conversation improves because i'm being physically active but if you have two streams of meaningful input that's when it becomes multitasking so for example walking and talking on the phone is not really multitasking in a sense where it lowers your IQ. I mean, usually if you stand up and you, and you walk while you have a conversation or a meeting or whatever, that actually improves your the quality of the conversation because you're moving. So, you know, just to make the distinction, multitasking is when you try to, to, to combine two meaningful streams of input and checking the email in between or quick glances at your uh, Facebook uh, feed or at your notifications that is something where you have one thing that you should be focused on that should have your attention, and it has, but then you do a quick switch to the other thing. And so the idea is that if you are shifting between different sets, if you are rapidly uh, going from one thing to another, to another, to another, back to one thing, 
you are effectively spending less attention on each of them. But also, like I said before, what you practice is what you get. So your mental abilities are very much a product of what you are practicing. So basically, every time you are doing quick glances, you are training that mental muscle for the wrong function. So you're getting better at the thing you don't want. But you are getting better at it, which is why people keep doing it. And so they so they feel like there's this mental reward, this inner reward of look at how good I'm multitasking. Like I'm doing, I'm driving and I'm having a conversation and I'm checking my email. I'm so super productive. And it's a big trap. It's a mental trap. And it's one of the hardest ones for me to actually work on because my life right now you know i started writing about focus i had this whole system i had my patterns i was super focused wrote a book in 30 days started doing the social media marketing building the business the business became successful and now i find myself having 10 times as many uh, social media notifications and messages and emails and you know the whole the whole business process they run and this has one been one of the most important uh, one of the most difficult ones for me to really get on track and I'm, I'm doing well everything's working but also just to be honest i'm not a, the master of focus i know about these things because i need them and i really find that i do have these periods where i am um really caught up in the business work and i love I mean, I love my work, uh, which is why it's so difficult to cut back on these things where I'm going like, oh, I'm answering emails. All right, I remember this message and I check the message and I go, oh, I'm doing that. And then, um, you know, I I really feel that the rest of the day and even during the night, you know, my sleep suffers, my focus suffers, and I'm I'm really detraining my, that mental muscle of focus uh, for the function I want and I'm training it for a function I don't want. So I think that's, you know, to, to close off that statement, I read this study that said they, they did a study to multitasking, and it said that people who feel like they're really good at multitasking, they feel like they're really good at multitasking, <laughs> and that's it. They feel great, they feel productive, but in reality, they're actually not performing well at any of the tasks they're trying to perform at. Just on that book thing you mentioned, you wrote an Amazon bestseller in 30 days. What I'm curious about, Casper, is that's a great feat. How much of it was mental belief in your own mind that you could do it and how much was actually the skill of being a writer and having content was there a what's the combination between those two things to make it happen (laughs) i think it was neither of the two um i uh a lot of time in those 30 days was spent on me being <laughs> being an anxious wreck about, you know, the whole identity thing of being a writer. That was a very interesting thing. And especially the topic of stress and anxiety, which I wrote a lot about, I had to really practice every one of those um, to be able to do it. And, I, you know, I wasn't an anxious wreck for the moment. I had in- incredible moments of flow, but also incredible moments of just going, who am I? What am I doing? Does this even make sense? You know, uh, because it's a, it's a big challenge, which is, you know, I, and, I, and, I, and I like that that's what was the, the that's um, what it was like, because that's real. That's true. That's human life. I mean, um, uh, it, the 30 days went very well. I've learned an incredible amount of of interesting insights about myself and about life and about productivity but it wasn't easy at all um until i started really getting it so the the belief and the confidence was not a big player uh neither was me being a writer 
right? So those are the two things you mentioned. It's confidence in that I could do it. Uh, and then where there was the skill of writing. So I had never uh, written uh, in this way. I used to write poetry and stuff like that. But I, I this way of writing, uh, you know, writing a book was completely new to me. So I didn't have the skill. And I didn't have a very strong belief that I could do it. Actually, my belief was that I couldn't do it, which is one of the reasons I did it. So I, um, one of the biggest things that has helped me is to, to go and to write down all the things of which I believe I cannot do them. I was looking, like hunting down all of my I can'ts and then working to prove them wrong. And I did a whole bunch of them, you know, like running a marathon on my bare feet um, uh, with hardly any training and conquering the cold, doing this whole Iceman thing. Um, and then I found in, in my own kind of like psyche, as I was writing and journaling, I found that I had this really big, Believe that I can't focus. You know, I, I don't have control over my attention. Uh, something that I've heard a lot of uh, a large part of my life, and I'm completely unliterary. I mean, I'm literate. <laughs> I, I can kind of put words on paper, and I can read, but I would never read a book. If, you know, if somebody would gift me a book, I'd be like, "Oh, that's really kind," but I'm I'm probably not ever going to read this. You know, so I'm not good at books. I can't focus. That was a mental pattern. And I decided, you know, I was on I was on the hunt to find them and change them. So I was like, all right, so I guess I'll I'll write a book about focus, um, and I'll write it in thirty days to really uh, see if it if it's something I can do. Because you know, spending five years writing a book on on focus and productivity might not be a real feat, <laughs> might uh, not do justice to the book. What I did have was a system, so. I didn't have the belief or the skill, but I did have a system and I had curiosity and I had a lot of excitement for the thing. Um, so I was building a system around my uh, focus, around my attention and around my um, belief that I didn't have the skill or that I didn't have the capacities. So I took away, even though it was a big goal to finish it, I took away as much judgment as I could. So, for example, people sit down and write and they think, I need to write something smart. So, I, I didn't allow myself to think, now I'm going to write something good, something smart, something insightful. No, now I'm going to write words. So, I, I, I took everything down to the base level and I focused on developing the skill. Because I knew I didn't have the skill of writing yet, but I figured if I'm going to write a book... Um, I should focus on developing the skill as I write it. So now writing the book um, became a tool to develop my skill of writing. And that's all I focused on. I focused on progress over perfection. And for example, one thing I did is uh, I was like, okay, I know I can't work for hours at a time or I can't focus on one thing for hours at a time, which I need to do if I write this book. Uh, and also, I, I still had a job at the time. I was still playing in a band, and you know, I, I, I had other things going on. So I can't focus on one thing for a long period of time. I don't have this skill yet, and I, I still don't really believe that I can do it. I mean, I have the audacity to go out there and try. I kind of like, you know, I don't care if I if I don't believe it. And that's that's something my my mother taught me. She was like, nobody cares if. If you believe you can do it or you're not worth it, you just do it anyway. <laughs> I was like, yeah, mom, that's, that's yeah, a great mom. tip. <laughs> so practically what I did is I was like, okay, so how long can I focus? About 15 or 20 minutes. Cool. So I'll do that and then I'll take a break, and which is also that's actually known as the Pomodoro technique. Um, so I went for it and 
those 20 minutes of writing, I was, did not have the goal of saying I need to write something smart or intelligent or insightful. No, for 20 minutes in one go, I am just flapping my hands on my keyboard as much as I can and I'm not judging any word I write. So I took away the whole judgment, the whole need for skill, the whole need for belief that I can do it. It was just 20 minutes of flapping my hands on the keyboard and then um, taking a break, going back at it and flapping my hands on the keyboard. And that's what I kept doing. So by lowering the bar that much, my brain was basically like, hold on, actually, you can probably do better than just flapping your hands. And I've literally spent time you know, with my hands on my keyboard going, just, you know, <laughs> making random letters. Um, and then just trusting that my brain would eventually come up with something better. And it did. And then I started to see the things I could do. And I started focusing on what, on what I could do. I started focusing on, hold on, this 20-minute block of flapping my hands on the keyboard was actually of more skill than the one before this. So what if I can make the same increment of growth in the next 20 minutes? So then it became uh, a skill, almost like a fun game of seeing how much I could improve, not how good I was, but how much I could improve. And that's really the, that was really the key for me to get it all down, to leverage skills that I did have in a different um, – well, no, first of all, to take away the judgment, uh, to set the bar really low – and then another thing was to leverage skills of which I did think I have them into another area. So I had the belief I cannot write. Uh, uh, but I also had a belief I can teach. So I started to think, what if writing is just teaching but on paper? And it was literally that simple. <laughs> as soon as I got that, I was like, no, I'm not writing. I'm not a writer. I'm not trying to write a genius book. I am teaching, but instead of speaking out loud, I'm doing it on paper. And when I couldn't do that, I would every now and then I would record a 20-minute uh, section of me just blurting into the microphone, and then I'd listen back to it and write down all the smart stuff I happened to say in that period. Right. So I was levering, leveraging those skills that I did have, but taking them uh, into a new context. With with creating systems. Uh there's a guy called David Heinemeyer Hansen who wrote Rework and another book called Remote with his partner Jason Freed. And he's coming up on the show in a couple of weeks' time. And one of the things that he talked about was how he compartmentalizes himself. So he has, he will only do, say, check his social feeds on his iPad. So if he's working in front of his desktop, he's working and he allows himself to check social feeds, but he has to go to a, a different device to do it. You talk about a similar thing with saying, well, perhaps you move spaces. So you do this here, but if I'm going to do that, I've got to move spaces. Tell me, is that one of the systems you put in place for your writing and to help you develop focus and the discipline of concentration is to create that compartmentalizing of space? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I would have my, uh, I would write in my attic and the attic was like my focus temple. One thing that I understood pretty quickly, which was really a game changer for me, is that uh, is the yin-yang principle, basically, but applied to focus, where what's the opposite of focus? Well, it's distraction. So in, in the whole yin-yang thing, the one creates the other. You know, the, the uh, light creates the you know, ability for darkness. So I realized distraction might create focus. And that, to me, was a stroke of insight that was really helpful. So I would only work. So in that 
place at my desk in the attic, I would only do the bookwork and nothing else. So as soon as I got distracted by anything, I was okay. Like I didn't judge myself and go, oh, you suck. You got distracted again. No, keep focusing. No, I was like, oh, here comes an interesting distraction. But I have to get up and get out of here. I have to do this in a different location. So I trained my brain to be focused in that spot. So every time I sat down there, it was easier to switch into that focus mode and it was uh, easier to stay there for a longer time. Also, what I did is the distractions I had around me were all helpful. So I knew, for example, that a distraction of scrolling through a Facebook feed is not helpful. It depletes your brain even more. But a distraction of uh, playing piano is actually a really great way to recharge your brain. So I would have my juggling balls. I would have you know my piano. I'd have a pull-up bar. I'd have some stuff to play around with. And if I did feel like I got distracted, I took my distraction into an activity that actually was helpful to my brain, like music, like movement, uh, doing a few pull-ups, stuff like that. Um, but whenever it was a it was a uh, non-useful distraction, and even productive ones like answering emails, I would walk away from that desk. I would move away and do do the other thing at a different place. So my creative writing space, where I was really doing the creative work and the deep work. I was not allowed to answer emails. I did uh, answering emails in a in a different place. So I would just go downstairs and answer emails there. So that's a very important thing. Uh, also, I used smells and tastes and things like that. So I had this specific candle that I burnt in in my office. I had this. Uh, I even experimented with having a specific taste of chewing gum. It didn't work too well for me. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, that definitely works in different settings. So, for example, that's something that I did to pass my exams when I was a kid. And I was having these anxiety issues that I had a specific taste of chewing gum that I would uh, chew during uh, studying. And then I would also chew it while making the exam. That was very helpful. Didn't help too much in the book writing. But, I mean, you know, so I tested all these different ways to basically make these little rituals. And then just the act of performing a ritual or going to a specific location would allow me to switch my brain into that set of work. You use music as well. I heard you talk about that you and what what I found fascinating was you use gaming music as part of your call it ritual or process for writing. How does that work? What I found is is music is a really helpful tool to improve your focus and to keep your productivity up, uh, but not all music. So first and foremost, the most important thing is that you enjoy the music. Uh, music is a mood regulator, and mood is a very important important regulator of focus. Basically, if you're happy, it's easier to stay focused and to stay productive and creative. So that's something to use music for. But I noticed that a lot of the music that was my favorite music, so I started picking music that I liked, so my favorite music, but it all had lyrics. And then as soon as the music had lyrics, it would be a new, meaningful stream of input, which would put me into multitasking mode, and then the words would distract me the words of the song so i was like okay i need instrumental music um but also i need instrumental music without a tension span so uh, normal music uh, pop music uh, modern pop music is made to have a tension span so there's a build-up and there's a drop down and there's an you know an escalation and there's a bridge and then there's like a happy ending in the song that's kind of how all music works so if you use music like that you're 
and you're using this music, which is a powerful regulator of mood, to influence your mood and your emotions. Like you're getting caught up into the song while you actually want the song to allow you to get caught up in the work. So then music becomes a distraction in itself. So I realized I need a kind of music that takes away all the other other distractions. So instead of having my focused work and a bunch of thoughts and a bunch of distractions, I now have my focused work and my music. So now that music needs to support my focus instead of be a distraction in itself. And there's a lot of meditation music out there, which is uh, sometimes a bit too monotonous because it's just a drone, just this one sound that just keeps going. And I realized that the only music that is specifically composed for the result of keeping your attention with something, with a certain type of activity, is video game music. Because, you know, you have a, a kind of music that plays when you are in an explorative part of the game. You have a certain type of music that plays when you're in, you know, the end, the end boss um, uh, battle. And uh, so I could now ask myself, what am I doing? So in the morning... I would do my creative work, uh, which means uh, I'd have an explorative mindset of looking for new ideas. And I'd look for video, video game music that, you know, in the video game would play in kind of like the in-between spaces when there's nothing much happening. Then I, if I would find a flow of focus um, where I go like, oh, I'm onto something. Now I got to really like just get in there and put the words on paper. I would look for more exciting uh, music, you know, like exciting levels that require, uh, that, are, that have more action and are a bit more upbeat. Um, and then if I would have these moments of, oh yeah, this is, this is the moment, now I'm going to put down some amazing stuff on paper, let's rock, I would play these boss level uh, music, which are epic and with like big sim symphony sounds and stuff like that. The last thing that's so great about video game music is that it's made to loop. Because the video game doesn't know how long it's going to take you to finish the level. So it's just going to be on an endless loop until you finish. So there is no, um, the, the, the excitement in the music is not created by uh, creating a, um, a loop of um, a line of tension, like in pop music, where it builds up until you feel all the feels. No, it, it has, in the pattern, the pattern is exciting the whole time. Right, so you keep in that pattern, and uh, you can actually find these YouTube playlists where you just have two hours of exciting video game music, of two hours of uh, epic uh, boss music that is very exciting. Where do you find it? Like, if, if it, it, name a track that would be the example of that, and where would we go to find it? I would just go on YouTube. So that's another thing. I, I like to to, to I, eventually I develop playlists that work for me. But every time I do that, I'd go on YouTube and I'd just type in, you know, one hour or 20 minute video game music um, uh, or um, concentration music. It's that simple. <laughs> you know, I, I can talk a lot about the whole science behind it, but practically it's as simple as just going online, typing in a few words that seem like they make sense and then testing a few things. And then if I'd find something that would work for me, because again, it's a mood regulator. It's very subjective. I would save that into a playlist. You just mentioned the word concentration, just something that I'd like to ask you about. Concentration used to be the word we used to hear at school, like your kid can't concentrate or I need to contest, I need, to, I need, I need quiet because i got to concentrate. Today you hear the term focus, laser beam focus, deep work, distraction. Is laser beam focus the same thing as concentration? To me, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. It's I think it's different 
definitions. Um, I say focus is concentrated attention. So concentration is the act of bundling up all your attention and creating a focal point. But that's kind of what I like about the word focus is that uh, if, if you have a kind of like the, the, the definition of focal point in mind, and that's how I explain it, just like with the laser beam, you know, if you, if you have a sunny day and there's just a bunch of sunlight that's scattered all over the place, it's kind of warm, it's kind of sunny, but you don't really feel it that powerfully. If you then take, um, you know, a magnifying glass and you have all that scattered and dispersed sunlight and you bring it together to a focal point, then it becomes that point where everything focuses becomes extremely powerful. So you concentrate the light that is there into the focal point. So concentration is the act of gathering your mental uh, uh, abilities, emotions, desires, wants, and you gather them and then you concentrate them in, into the focal point, And that is, you know, that extremely powerful thing, you know, and with the light, it's power enough to burn a hole uh, in, you know, a piece of paper or whatever. And then with your mental capacities, it's powerful enough to, well, I think do whatever it is you want to do in life. You have come out of the blocks. You're now featuring on some pretty impressive podcasts like Ben Greenfield, you're writing great stuff. Your videos are terrific. I, I like watching you on stage on YouTube. So you're starting to get this real presence now, and I suspect there's a lot more traffic for you on social feeds because other people's expectations are that Casper's the guy, he's going to share, he's going to make me better. How do you personally curate your social feeds during the day? That's a very accurate account of what happened, <laughs> and uh, it's a big question for me too. Uh, it used to be much easier when I didn't have that much to process. I didn't have that much input coming in. Um, so the difficulty about for me to curate it is, is it's so exciting. It's so much fun. Like I open up my phone and I get exciting questions that I love to answer. I get amazing messages from people saying, you know, you've impacted my life. And, you know, thanks to your work, I've been able to do this and that. And I get requests for podcasts and to, for speaking engagements and, you know, lots of business. So the input that I get is input that I really want <laughs> and I get a lot of it. So it's very difficult to, um, to, to kind of like regulate that for myself because if I would just kind of like – just like the, the inner fat kid in me just wants to snack all day, you know, and I have to kind of work <laughs> with that guy um, – and just like like my my inner uh, almost like you know my inner exciting puppy who wants to go out into the world and do stuff just wants to check his social feeds the whole time because if I refresh now I'm at a point you know if if I don't refresh for five minutes and I refresh five minutes later there's really something interesting to see for me so uh, uh, you know how do you keep yourself from it that that's a difficult thing so for me it is um, making uh, uh, rules for myself as to how much time I spend on it and when I do it. So, for example, um, I have these rules of an hour after I get out of bed and an hour before I go to bed. Those are completely um, social media free or should be. And I don't always have this. And again, like I've said it a few times, 
um, I know about these things because I need them because I need to practice them. I am I am a very flawed individual. <laughs> I am not perfect, and I think that this is also the the era of of life of where humans understand that we don't want the, the pristine guru that has the perfect example. We want to follow actual humans that are vulnerable and are open and share their struggles. And for me, this is the same thing. I used to be very unfocused, but also I didn't have a lot of interesting stuff going on. Now I have a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on and focus has become an even more important skill for me to practice. So I have rules like an hour after um, I get out of bed. The first hour of the day and the last hour of the day are free of any um, social media input. Then again, the timers, the blocks, the Pomodoro technique, that's such an important thing. So if I do, um, uh, let's say I'm working and I'm, I'm writing and doing important productive work or I'm in a meeting or whatever, no checking my phone, no social media. And then I go, all right, so how much time um, do I need for this? Uh, to deal with all this stuff. And they go, well, about 20 minutes. Okay, I'll give myself 10, and then I see if I've done everything. I'll set a timer, I go for it, I like full focus, Facebook, Instagram, boom, 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 checking messages, responding to people, uh, answering emails, and it's just communications, communications, communications. The timer goes, and I stop, I walk away from it. And then I have to re-ask myself, take a few deep breaths and go, all right, now if I would go back into it, am I doing it? Just be, you know, for the thrill of excitement, for the dopamine hit of seeing something fun, or is it really productive time that I need to spend on this? And if I can ask that question, if I can give myself that moment of awareness and go, what am I really doing here? Am I, am I being a social media junkie or am I being, a, you know, a productive social entrepreneur? Um, that's uh, half the battle. That's that's so important. Just having that moment of awareness. So it's, you know, blocks of time, strict rules, but also using conscious awareness to be flexible within the rules. That's also a very important thing. Because sometimes it just go like, well, you know what, I'm going to spend more time on this and it's fine because it's a conscious choice. That's what makes it okay. There's a new sign for the studio wall, Robbo. It's the inner fat kid just wants to snack. <laughs> my, my inner fat kid just wants to snack. Yeah. I think that's gold. Touching. I like that. I think you're going to have to get used to this, mate, because I think uh, I find your stuff very authentic. I think you are very honest to say, look, I'm a flawed individual. Here are the things I've tried. You're a, you're a scientist. You test things. You try them. But it's just usable and practical. The thing I like about it is you take a lot of this stuff, you just make it accessible for people. And I think that you have got a big, big future in front with helping people. I think it's founded in a great purpose. You've got a good mission. You're doing good stuff. You present well. So um, I think you're going to have to keep working on your fat kid, mate. <laughs> the fat kid's coming out at some point. No, thank you, man. I, I really appreciate the. The, I, I really appreciate the, the kind words, and I, I accept the compliment with uh, with much love, which is another thing I'm practicing. I have to I have to practice receiving and uh, and accepting. So, no, it's nice. It's uh, was we we have an underlying theme through the show of, of people talking about the power of gratitude. So it's nice to hear it's something that's also in your artillery, so to speak, in your you know your journey. Is that you are? Because I think you know. Once you start getting those dopamine hits of people posting nice things and saying nice things, it can tend to be, yeah, great. What's next? So I think it's nice to uh, to acknowledge the fact you're receiving, and that's a that's that's an interesting part of gratitude, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I have really seen in my own life that I was unable to receive these 
little acts of kindness. And there's a lot of people out there who are much better at giving, at caring for another than at receiving and caring for themselves. And I'm definitely one of those, especially on the type A productive type of people. Um, and I would find myself getting a compliment and either going, yeah, well, you know, you don't really know me. <laughs> you know, of course you think you're awesome. You should see me when, I, when, when the inner fat kid comes out, you know? Um, and another thing is then I kind of like talk <laughs> over it and go like, yeah, well, it's part of the job and I'm doing my best and you know, you're great too. And then, so one of the things I'm practicing now, which I'm really putting a lot of effort in is every time I, I get a compliment, then I say, I receive it with love because nobody enjoys trying to give somebody something and then them not accepting it. So when I understood that, if I, you know, kind of skip over a compliment or kind of go, yeah, whatever, you're cool too. That person wants to gift me something and I'm basically saying you're not allowed to gift me. Uh, and I think it's it's a very good practice of allowing people, you know, if I give somebody a compliment, I, it's a really great experience to give anything to anybody, especially a compliment, and then they really accepting it wholeheartedly. And that's another thing. I work with rules to reprogram myself and the new script I have in place, which is exactly what I just said is, thank you, and I will receive the compliment with love. Um, yeah, so, well, that was the last, last hit of content <laughs> at the end. Thanks for your time, mate. I know you're dealing with a, a sick little one today, and we really appreciate you hanging with us and spending, spending some time and sharing some wisdom and some gold. So, Casper, uh, thanks, buddy. It's been great. It's been a massive pleasure. Anytime. Help us get the Mojo Radio Show on the iTunes What's Hot list. Hit up the Mojo Radio Show and leave a comment now. Oh, and please. You are such a disappointing pair. Be gentle with us. What a great guy. Yeah, he's um he's got a great story. I I like his stuff and, and I think the thing I like about it, he's experimented on himself. But it's all very practical. And uh, he also plays at the highest level with guys like Wim Hof and these sorts of guys. He, um, he must be good at what he does. Yeah. Can he walk through walls as well? Don't know. We should have asked him that. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. All right. Pop quiz, hot shot. Right on. All right. Firstly, I've got three little grabs here. I want it, after each one, I want you to tell me what movie they're from. You talking to me? Taxi driver. Who is it? De Niro. All right. Next one. Here's Johnny. <laughs> Oh, probably it could be Jim Carrey, mm. or it could be that scary character from that scary movie. It's Jack Nicholson from The Shining. Yeah, one more. Uh, that's what I meant. That's yeah. yeah. I, and I then you were also say see that. Jim Carrey did a Jim Carrey did an impersonation that, which is quite good too. All right. Okay. All right. Well, here we go. One more. Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Hey, is that just me? It's a little bit early. Uh, Robin Williams, Good Morning Vietnam. Absolutely. Do you know why I'm playing those? Negative. They are all improvised scenes. And the thing that, in, that got me about that is they're not only improvised, they're also scenes that made those movies famous, if I'm not wrong. So you could put any grab in from the Mojo Radio Show and we would sit along Jack Nicholson. Absolutely. Uh, De Niro and Robin Williams. <laughs> okay, we're, we're in, all of whom in their time have been very big fans of the show. Absolutely, and constantly write to us. Well, Robin doesn't write so much anymore, but the other two are still at us. Um, look, the reason I actually am playing them is I was working on a job for a client the other day and they congratulated me on a piece of work, not because of what I took out, but 
what I've actually left in. It was a, a little piece of dialogue that the, the voiceover artist had sort of dropped during an outtake and I cut it into the piece and it, it just made the whole thing click together. And it occurred to me afterwards that it, we do that in life a lot too. We sort of edit ourselves and then perhaps we should just get on with it and go with what, what's in our gut. So the reason that to pop quiz, because I'm interested to hear from you someone who stands in front of people all day, every day, talking about this type of thing and, and doing one-on-one sessions, do you see it a lot? And, and if you do, how do we get ourselves out of the habit? Well, the first thing is I think people, if you think about how people edit themselves, their social feeds is probably one of the biggest culprits mm. because people are always shining themselves in the best light. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about being on your feet or being with people, if you're with friends and family, you know the true friends and family is when you can be authentic and they'll take the good, the bad and the ugly. And then if you're going to stand in front of an audience and present or make a speech or do anything, the authenticity comes from you being who you are and not speaking as you think people want to see you, but being authentic. And that will certainly cut you through the crowd. So there's probably a lot to that because I think authenticity, which feeds into resilience and grit, has been a little bit of a theme for us over the years when we talk to guests. And you can even see it. I mean, a lot of guests come on the show and they start out doing their normal routine. But when they when they realise what our show is all about, they do tend to change their tone, don't they? And they sort of mm. fall into more of an authentic self where they forget they're talking on a podcast. They just end up talking with two mates. Yeah. So I don't know. You could, I think you can take that in a lot of different ways, whether it be improvisation, which a lot of the great actors can do, and that's the yeah and versus yeah but mm. that Mike Myers talks about. Mm. The other part of it, though, is probably just are you being authentic in every part of your life? Uh-huh. There you go. Nice answer. I um, I did ponder on that for a while. So did I do good? Done good. Hi, it's Lane Beachley here, seven-time soul surfing champion. I've seen a lot of goofy footers and maybe a few kooks in my lifetime, but Robbo and Gary from the Mojo Radio Show, they definitely taste cake. So to take us out, this is just a bit of a tribute. This is no, I don't think, any real lesson, apart from this guy is a legend, but... I have followed this guy and been a fan for, I reckon, for approaching five decades since I was a kid. And I heard last week that Neil Diamond is now retiring from the road. Uh, In Australia alone on one tour, he sold a million dollars worth of tickets. I think, in fact, he holds the record for the number of shows consistently at at the old Sydney Entertainment Centre. In the age of 77, he's got Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I know. Sad news, right? But, um, yeah, certainly a legend. You're absolutely right. So this is just a bit of a tribute. And we were talking off-air with AP before we started. And you go, yeah, he's been popular and stuff, but do you reckon people would know him? You play Sweet Caroline, (laughs) I Am I Said, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, Cracklin' Rosie, Solitary Man, Holy Holy, Song Sung Blue. I mean, the depth of this guy's library over four or five decades is absolutely... Imagine how many generations have listened to Neil Diamond. Oh, yeah. Well, when you think of his age, it's the same amount of generations that have listened to the Rolling Stones or any of those other bands of that era. Amazing, right? And I reckon there wouldn't be 
even today, even with the younger generations coming through, a few beers and a stereo, you put on Song Song Blue at about one o'clock in the morning, <laughs> tell me people wouldn't be singing along. It happens in my house regularly. So we're going to rock out with a bit of Neil Diamond today. And this is just a tribute to a guy who's 77 years old. He was still touring, still writing original music. He's an award winner and just, in our mind, a legend. And the thing I think that's very quite fascinating about Neil Diamond is that where music is today, he doesn't sit on many radio stations, does he? I mean, he sits no. right smack bang in the middle between all your pop and R&B and rock and country. To be still that popular mm. and sit right the smack bang in the middle, and let's face it, not many radio stations now are playing adult contemporary stuff. It's quite phenomenal, really, isn't it? Absolutely. He's a little bit like us, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. A little bit sort of nowhere. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> uh, what's the song going to play out with? Uh, it's uh, Crunchy Granola Sweet, the legendary Crunchy Granola Sweet, the live version. All right. Folks, crank this up, turn it up. See you next week. All right. <laughs>
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.